I would say that is the big thing that's missing in STEAM education is, you know, we've got kids who can design and build great things. They're able to code, but then they're not able to really explain the why or look at the society around them from a empathetic perspective and design with a purpose. Welcome to Rotten Apples, where we share the best ideas in education, whether it's learning space design, restorative practice, or simply teacher self-care. We're learning from the experts who cut through the BS and find out what's really working and what's not in our classrooms and schools, making St. Louis home to the best educators in practice today. Hey everybody, this week I have a very special treat for you. We are going to be talking to Dr. Glenn Barnes. And although the general topic is kind of related to social studies education and how we can make it really dynamic and fit in the 21st century context, I did need to, before kind of introducing him and providing some context to the interview, I did want to make a couple of notes around the way that this has been structured because it was very, very unusual. So I interviewed Glenn over the summer and I had started working on trying to figure out if I should cut this thing down. You notice that it's almost an hour, this whole conversation. And I thought, okay, I tried to stick to 30 minutes. I'm going to break it up into two parts. And there was really no way to do that. Like there were so many parts of this conversation that were so incredible and not even just for social studies teachers. I mean, definitely not. If you feel in any way that we have a political environment that is uh, very detrimental for us, for our kids, uh, we're not having dialogue, we're not discussing, then this is a very, very good conversation for you to be involved in. Now, the interesting part, though, is that we had a number of technical problems when trying to uh, record this interview. The Skype call dropped, and then I had to restart it, and then one of the recording mechanisms failed. And so it took me forever to figure out how to get the uh, voices balanced and, and to get everything as clear as humanly possible. It seems like everything that could have gone wrong with the technology at this point did go wrong, which rarely happens to me, honestly, most of the time I'm able to figure that stuff out. So it should tell you something that I spent weeks and weeks and weeks trying to figure this out because the content really is that good. It's really that valuable. I know I'm biased. I you know, taught social studies. So of course, this conversation is a little more two-way than most of my conversations tend to be. I like to hear other people talk, but there's plenty of information that you know I have to share in there too. So it was a, it was a really great conversation. But it was something that I really had to try to figure out from a technical level, which was pretty awesome, actually. It's amazing how much you learn when you really, really are motivated to uh, to get it across to everybody. So, but what happened, unfortunately, is at the very beginning of this, I lost a lot of the context around who he is, what he does. We talked a little about the political environment. That stuff I had to cut out. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit here right at the very beginning. So Glenn is a social studies coordinator for the St. Louis Public School System. He works with the Connected Learning team. He runs a podcast out there. Uh, He's just sort of a general know-it-all when it comes to St. Louis education. And uh, the reason for that, you'll hear in the interview, he talks a lot about his upbringing in St. Louis, the way he worked through the system, the changes that he's seen over time. So that's why I say this really isn't a social studies thing. This is a sort of history of St. Louis schooling uh, conversation. 
And so I think that really impacts everybody. It doesn't matter if you live in the city, if you live in Wentzville, if you live in Afton, if you live uh, in Rolla, for that matter. A lot of these issues affect our region. And so it was a really fantastic conversation. I will say this, though. Most of the time, I try to seek out people who have different views from me or see the world differently, and so I can ask a lot of questions. Glenn and I tend to see the world in a very similar way. So for those of you who are listening to this, if there's something that you feel you need to push back on, I really, really want you to do it. Tweet me, Instagram me, um, comment on the blog post. I'll always add those to, uh, to these interviews as well. I really want to get some dialogue going around a lot of these discussions because we cover everything. We talk about why history is seen as excruciatingly dull. We talk about what's missing in STEAM education and this huge push for technology, which we're both huge fans of. But we run into some problems, you know, in implementation. We talk about that. Uh, we talk about the very long history of school segregation in St. Louis and how that is very real and very alive and uh, it is impacting our entire region. So we don't shy away from controversial topics, but we don't have a whole lot of pushback and give and take on this. And so I love, like I said, this whole thing is about you guys and what you want to talk about. And if you have something to jump in and chime in on, please, please, that's we're all about that. So make sure that you, I know it's very, very long, listen to part of it on your way in, listen to the other part on the way home, and then tell me what you think. If you think that we need to expand on these conversations, if you think we need to include other voices, if you absolutely want to talk about all of these issues way more, and I can't wait for you to learn all of the different things, and I really just jump right in and ask him about his history here, so I can't wait for you guys to learn right along with me. So where does your passion for social studies come from? Because we could all, when we start, you know, thinking about becoming educators, there are a million different paths that we could choose. How did you end up in social studies and why that subject area versus anything else that you could teach? I have, um, I, I had a grandfather who um, instilled a love of history into me. Um, he was the son of a Scottish immigrant who uh, his his father came over in uh, 1884, 1885. And uh, one of the things that my grandfather shared with me is the story of how um, he settled into the country and moved to the plains of Kansas and um, became a farmer. And how my grandfather lived through various times in history that the way he could just really uh, hooked me. And I mean, that's the nature of historians. We are the storytellers uh, of, of the past. And so whether that be um, living through the uh, influenza epidemic of 1919 through 1921 and eventually joined the military and fought in World War II, I mean, th those, those are the stories that really got me hooked. And, and his, his love of history um, with just really an eighth grade education, really instilled in me a, a great value for knowing and learning the past. And so I soaked up a lot of his wisdom. And he, he passed away when I was um, 15 years old. So a really uh, pivotal point in my life as I'm just really new into high school. And, and I, I'd always enjoyed history, but I never thought about it as a career until I went to college. And when I went to college, I thought I was going to be 
a radio DJ, get into communications, do fun things like that. I had done that in high school. But then I started looking at the future of radio. <laughs> and at mm-hmm. the time in the 90s where you're starting to see a lot of consolidation and, and not a lot of individuality, but it was much more of a corporate structure. That was something that I wasn't too much of a fan of. So within my dad's side of the family, there's just nothing but teachers, cousins, my grandfather on his side. And so I, uh, I went into education that way, but I also had some really good history teachers that reminded me a lot of my grandfather and, and that, that passion for history, telling me things that I thought were just amazing and fascinating. And so um, when I was going to, uh, it was then Drury College, now it's Drury University in Springfield, Missouri, um, I double majored in history and, and education and uh, just had some amazing professors and teachers and uh, um, really built upon that initial love spurred on by my grandfather. And there are some things that you mentioned there that really stood out to me because it's so funny. I didn't, I, I thought that I was kind of the only one who was kind of teetering on the edge of journalism in college. <laughs> and the more social studies people I talked to, the more of them had, had tinkered with the idea of that. And it's funny, it, it didn't go away. I mean, here we are, you know, doing podcasting. So, um, but the thing that I think is so pivotal that you talk about is that connection to story, because that runs through something I recently discovered about myself, that everything that I've been fascinated by, mine were history and English, because I, journalism, I quickly, I was the same thing, it was in the 90s, looking at it going, uh, yeah, I got to work 60 hours a week for 18,000 a year, pass, you know, I think I'm good, and, uh, but it, it was the idea of stories, you know, these stories of people that are, I think, really drive a lot of social studies teachers. Do you see that a lot in the people that you work with? I do. I do. I, I, I think of some of the colleagues that I've worked with in, uh, over, over the years. Um, for some, they're, they're history teachers because that is what their family did. So it's, it's almost become ingrained in who they are. Um, so many others, as far as social studies teachers, uh, again, having that pivotal person in their life, sharing a story, somebody to take the time and invest in them. Um, I mean, building that relationship. For me, my grandfather was kind of like a dad to me. I, 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 I didn't have the best relationship with my dad, and so my grandfather was, was somebody who um, took the time to be patient and really kind of talk through things that were going on. Um, he, he was the guy that when we went to the Wester Grove's 4th of July parade, he was always there to greet all of the politicians who were marching in the parade. Uh, one year I remember distinctly, I think it was, uh, Bill Webster, who was then the, uh, Missouri attorney general mm-hmm. who, uh, was later, uh, removed from office for disgraceful reasons, <laughs> but my <laughs> grandfather was there to you know, shake his hand. He wanted to make sure he shook hands with all the politicians. He was a Republican at the time, but he was very, he, he modeled for me uh, kind of the healthy cynicism, but also that respect of position of, of government. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, granted, this is, you know, about 30 years ago. And so times have definitely changed. But I, I think there's something to where 
we need to have a, a healthy skepticism, but also a respect of, of the, the position of power at the same time. And I don't know that that's something that we talk enough about or if it's something that uh, the folks in those positions have now abused to where our, our skepticism is, is warranted. Yeah. So there, there, there is this, this, yeah. um, this duality, in a sense, where I, I, I feel a great respect for their positions, like senator and governor and so on and so forth. But I, I, I think it's important that we remain skeptical of the people, but really hold up and elevate the position itself. Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree. And you have some really great stories in there that are woven into your reasons why you, you love this so much. So I kind of want to lead off then, or at least go in a, a different direction here and ask you then, why is history so boring? It is consistently listed as the most boring subject for students. And for people who teach it, they love it. They're riveted by it. They live for it. But most students just don't agree. So why why do you think that perception is there? We as history teachers are, are, are horrible at connecting the subject matter to the students' lives. You know, when we talk about a culturally relevant pedagogy, Social studies has to be at the first, at the at the forefront of that. Where if if we're if we're talking about you know some conflict going on between different groups of people, you know, I mean, where I worked for a number of years in the city of St. Louis, I mean, that's that's a lot of what our students are dealing with is conflict between groups of people. So you have to find a way to connect it to their lives, where where they can make sense. Uh, of something to where you're not talking about some dead people or, or groups who, who no longer exist to where it doesn't matter to them. But the emotional aspect of, of connecting it to their life is probably the most important thing that we uh, as history teachers can do. So we do get bogged down in the minutia because we're passionate about the subject, but we're not taking the time to really show the kids why it really matters or should matter to them and to where they make that personal connection to the story as well because the stories in many instances sound very similar um and and i mean that's that is the story of history is is we're competing for um advancement we're 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 trying to uh build on our our country And, and sometimes that comes with the with conflict towards others. And so being able to connect that back to our kids and and their life and help them make sense of it, only then does it uh, lose its luster of being boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I would definitely agree with you on that because it's, um, it's so often told, you know, we can only understand the world through our own lens. And when the, some of the history teachers I know I had, you know, as a kid, they pretty much looked at it through their lens, which typically was, you know, white, male, middle class. So they didn't understand the lower classes, the upper classes, different races, different genders. And, uh, and it, so it's, it's taught, you know, kind of through that lens. And it's hard if you don't see yourself in it, then it's hard to see relevance. So. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think, I think one of the areas where people started seeing uh, things in a different way. I, I know with you kind of have that English background. I mean, when when Baz Luhrmann did what he did with Romeo and Juliet, where 
you know, it, it turns into a gangster story, you know, with Leonardo DiCaprio. All of a sudden, people were like, oh, this is amazing. I get it. Even though they were still speaking the the, the English of, of the time, yeah. it made much more sense. And, and so instead of me sitting down in a classroom reading Romeo and Juliet, if I could read it and watch it at the same time in a context that I understand, mm-hmm. that's great. The, the, the thing that frightened me with like social studies and history in particular along the same lines is that I'm so critical when it comes to like historical films and my wife can tell you this too that as we watch some films I'm calling BS on so many there there is that side of me where if we leave out some detail that that could be very pivotal to the much larger context then that's a problem and so yeah there is a fear of glossing over certain details or uh, uh, whitewashing history in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, to where there are people and events in in history, uh, people of color, that I feel like the only movies about history that are made only revolve around, like, slavery, for example. Mm -hmm. But there are so many other uh, people and events who I think would be uh, fantastic for their story to be told. Mm-hmm. But I, I see people like Ava DuVernay, for example, with the uh, Central Park Five uh, miniseries that she did on Netflix, yeah. really telling a story that was uh, um, largely seen through the eyes of the media, presenting that story in a way that was, was compelling and from the perspective of those who actually lived it. And that, that's, that's what we need more of. And that's why I feel like people are becoming much more connected with history when they see stories like that. Yeah, no, I, I love what you said about the Romeo and Juliet film, especially. And then Central Park Five and all of the other work that she has done has been amazing. Uh, but it was funny as an English major when that uh, when the Romeo and Juliet came out, I would not see it for the longest time because I was such a Shakespeare purist. <laughs> sure. And then some friends of mine um, said that the language didn't change, that they kept, you know, the Shakespearean Middle English. And I said, all right, fine, you know, I'll go ahead and watch them. I mean, it's going to feel weird watching them on Venice Beach, but, you know, whatever. And uh, I really I loved it because I think what was valuable about that and um, about what Duvernay has done a couple of different things. So I know mm-hmm. that she did Central Park Five, and then. But what I love about her storytelling is that she, I don't think, is um, dishonest about the uh, about the the story, or that she disregards things. But the you're trying to focus in on what the point is and what the value right. is in learning it and in crafting a story around that. You don't want to alter facts, but you do have to design a story around the ultimate point. And it feels mm-hmm. like history teachers, that's something that we should probably be teaching them how to do because it's not its not easy. It's not easy to learn how to do that. And they don't typically. Right. They, they get very little, shockingly, very little education in how to actually do this job. And that, that's a very hard job to do. Right. I mean, just looking at her production of 13th is, is another area that I, I feel mm-hmm. is very valuable. I mean, the amount of research that goes into uh, producing that, but also uh, making the connection to the 13th Amendment. I mean, that, that is the anchor of that film. Mm-hmm. But here, here is where we have gone wrong um, as we have 
progress through history. You know, what was intended to correct a, a wrong is, is further being corrupted. And mm-hmm. so being critical consumers of information is one thing that I, I, I really focus on. Um, I, I, I focus on the why. I ask, I ask, I, I could say for being in the classroom, I ask more questions than I give answers. For me, that 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 is the root of teaching. I mean, that's that's Socratic, you know, going back thousands of years, where we're asking more questions than giving answers, and that's that's really what I want of my of my students as as they watch um, content like that or engage in in documents um, to to ask more questions than to expect answers. Yeah. That 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 is really at the root of social studies education is asking questions. Well, my question is why isn't the root of all of our education is them asking questions? It's definitely I, I agree. Yeah, it's definitely at the core I, of social studies. I agree. <laughs> I well, and I, I mean we could get into the 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 politically expedient answer of well, you know, the standards don't ask for that. You know, we're, we're, you know, looking at these artificial standards that are largely different across state, yet very similar, um, that um, the focus is on one assessment a year. And if you don't score well on that assessment, then there's something wrong with your education. And, and that's, I mean, that's, that's the frustration is that we're not able to get into what I would say the higher level of um, education because we're so hamstrung by uh, the concept of one assessment. Yeah. And that's, and we can see where that's gotten us. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole other episode. Yeah. Oh, God. It's, <laughs> oh, just this week. I, I debate in my class that's been raging for a week and a half, and it's just constantly over-testing. So, yeah, that's it's a whole other animal that, you know, we could talk all day about that. Um, but Absolutely. Yeah. But the the thing that's and that's a complaint testing is a complaint that most teachers and most subjects you know definitely have but one of the other things that i think from a social studies perspective that we struggle with a little bit is this newer focus on steam education which is yeah. you know you and i've talked about this before it's wonderful it's particularly important for our region we've got some mm-hmm. economic growth around these tech companies that is just huge and I mean, we both know people who are running businesses and are desperate for labor that is knowledgeable in this area and understands it. And so I don't think anybody's arguing that that's a bad thing. But what I think a lot of people around education don't realize is that there is always an opportunity cost to anything new. Something's got to go. There's only so many hours in the school day. And so while we can be supporters of that, there are definitely, from a social studies angle, there are definitely some concerns around that. So what are the concerns that, that you have around the way that this conversation has been going on? I think the conversation around STEAM has been rather myopic in the sense that we focus more on the uh, STEAM skills. You know, we want to teach coding as another language. We want kids who are, you know, beyond proficient or advanced in, you know, science and math, but one of the things that if you talk to a lot of these tech 
companies. Uh, and one of the things that I, I actually talked to uh, folks at Lumosity a couple years ago when I was out in San Francisco is they just don't hire the best coders. They don't hire uh, the folks with the highest grades. They're looking for people who can interact and engage with one another. They're looking for systems thinkers. And I feel like social studies education is, 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 a, is a way of systems thinking. You know, we're, we're looking at long-term impacts, but we're looking at how one decision um, plays out over a period of time. You know, mm-hmm. if you remove this particular thing, uh, like social studies education, where you have to be able to communicate uh, an idea, for an example, be able to conduct research, be able to show um, the the impact of your decisions, then it, it, if you're unable to do that, when you go to work in these high-tech companies, uh, that that's not going to allow for success of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, we are really missing out on an opportunity. I, I feel like, you know, with as much push as Steam has uh, had, I, I almost wonder what it would be like to push a, a, a social studies uh, initiative as well, where we had schools built around the social studies that also encouraged, you know, uh, coding and Steam and so forth. But one of the things that we're sorely lacking is interpersonal communication and communication with others and sharing of big ideas. And so for me, I would say that is the big thing that's missing in STEAM education is, you know, we've got kids who can design and build great things. They're able to code, but then they're not able to really explain the why or look at the society around them from a empathetic perspective and designed with a purpose. Yeah, for real. Yeah. One of the, I think, biggest concerns around the language, a lot of people that are pushing us, and it's it's getting pushed from a number of different angles, from a policy perspective, administrators, a PR, you know, angle, and uh, that's always a part of it. Uh, but when we, a, a lot of this push, I think a lot of the people that are pushing it the hardest are the ones that you're right are not like these companies that you talk to. So they focus a lot on very specific skills, very specific coding skills. And if they understood anything around things like Moore's law, which just the the advancement in these fields, by the time we teach it, AI is going to be able to do it. So, so we just spent all of our time training them in a skill that now they no longer need to do. Uh, systems thinking, critical thinking, those things don't go away. They're, they're necessary no matter where you are, no matter who you are. And uh, one of the things that when you were talking about it reminded me that I am really excited about is uh, Portfolium as a uh platform. It's a, an e-portfolio tool that has been bought by Canvas. And a number of schools in our area have Canvas. And what's been so interesting in my working with that tool over the years is that students, like you're talking about, can do these projects in these social studies classes that have all these other skills, but also do integrate technology, just not in a really obvious way. And when you can submit those things and tag them with specific skills, you can look across the student's profile and see what they're able to do. And so you may see that this is a project in a history class, but it actually has elements that do relate, you know, to technology acquisition and other areas of STEAM that are really critical. So as that happens, 
I'm kind of hopeful that that is going to help paint a clearer picture for people. They don't see that a social studies class is over here and a computer science class is here and a math class is here that, you know, we can't tease these things out. We thought that was a great idea during the industrial revolution, but it just doesn't make any sense anymore. And as these uh, portfolios and other tools like that, that really amplify a student's learning and tease it out based on the different skills that they have, I think we're really going to find that these the, the work that a lot of our teachers are doing is way more nuanced than people ever thought. Absolutely. And I, I, I've always believed that we need to make our schools much more horizontal in the sense of the, the subject areas being much more connected. So what's happening in a, in a science class, if you're, you're if you're in a class and you're talking about communicable diseases, then I can give some historical perspective when we're talking about the plague, for example. Um, ultimately, I, one of the things that I, I, I loved doing is, is talking about things like Pruitt-Igo with my students mm-hmm. and, and looking at how that entire area was left vacant for so long to where it now created a whole new ecosystem uh, uh, right in the middle of the city, yeah. you know, simply by uh, decay and um, so forth. And so uh, there, there's so many connections to be made, um, but I feel like the, the STEAM courses and the STEAM philosophy really need the social studies to uh, further expand the thought uh, and, and process of of, of sharing that knowledge and, and looking at things through, like I said, an empathetic perspective to address you know real world solutions. That's where the social studies really comes into place. Yeah. And that's why I love design thinking, for example. I mean, that's, that's at the root of it. And that's where that comes into play. Yeah, oh, and I would completely agree with that. And Prudigo is such a fantastic example. I, uh, now you're in St. Louis Public, and so geographically, yes. it's it's great that they can, you know, kind of see these things in their own neighborhoods and uh, in a relatively short distance. I always worry, though, about the schools that are kind of on the fringe of our area, these sort of really outer suburbs that we have where it's difficult for them to be able to connect to these things. And so... Um, you know, but there are schools that are doing it for sure. Uh, Peter Dry is, uh, I forget what his title is, is some sort of innovation dean or something at Principia. And they bring in their kids, you know, downtown and to Del Mar and to a lot of different areas to try and, you know, connect with the history that they're learning in classrooms. So it can definitely be done. It just takes a little bit of creativity and, um, and shifting around of resources. And so given that you kind of touched on that, what, what role, especially in our region, so what role do you think our history has played in the way that we teach social studies here? Uh, there, there, there's so, so much to say about this. I mean, for me personally, my, my very first teaching job was at Charles Sumner High School. And Charles Sumner High School was the oldest black high school west of the Mississippi. Um, established in 1875 named after the abolitionist senator from Massachusetts, um, home to Chuck Berry, Tina Turner, uh, Roscoe Robinson, who was the first four-star general, um, black four-star general in the United States Army. I mean, history was very much at the center of my first work experience. And so for me, teaching in that school with uh, folks who had been there for a really long time, who 
who shared the history of Sumner with me. Um, it, 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 it created an impetus for me to share that history with my students in a whole new way. Um, along those same lines, I mean, thinking of, of Pruitt Igo, and I had students who went to the Gateway Elementary and Middle School, which is on that former site, talking about how the neighborhood has changed. Um, I, I, I tried to share as much of the history and uh, love of, of St. Louis history with them and, and, and try to connect it back to them. I mean, we, we had students, even when I was working at Clyde Miller Career Academy, which is up in uh, Grand, uh, north, just north of the uh, symphony, um, some of them were busted. So we had to talk about why they're being bused into a school when there's a school maybe down the street for them. And so that, that involves talking about Minnie Liddell and her story of trying to seek out uh, an equitable education for her children. And I, I attended school with two of her kids. So it was very much um, a part of my upbringing um, being bused from South St. Louis to school up in North St. Louis. Um, there's, there's a lot to talk about. And I, and I think as school districts, we need to do a better job of coming together and having these these conversations. If, if you're a teacher in St. Louis, and, I, and I, I say St. Louis is a region, and you don't know who Minnie Liddell is, then we have failed as a uh, institution to talk about that. And I know equity education is such a, a huge um, conversation point and a huge emphasis in a lot of school districts. But even then, they don't talk about the history of desegregation in St. Louis. And for me, um, understanding the history of St. Louis, that we were a city in 1916 that voted to legally segregate the city itself. Uh, our schools, I mean, going back to pruitt Igo again, there was the Pruitt School and then there's Car Lane School that are literally maybe a football field apart from one another, and yet they were built for two different bodies of students. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're still in operation today. One's a KIPP school, one's uh, a visual and performing arts school. And so we, we have to help our students see the world around them, see things as they once were. Um, look at it as an opportunity for what it can be that that to me is 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 very much a part of looking at our own history but helping our students make sense of where they live and why things are the way that they are and being the being the change that we want to see um it my, my dad did not like the idea of me going to school up in North St. Louis because he grew up during the times of, of segregation, you know, pre-Brown. And so, um, you know, working with the, you know, conversations on race is, is definitely a part of it, but also helping people see 
that there's so much opportunity there as well. But also there's a lot of inequality that needs to be addressed yet. And so I know that's a, a, a long-winded answer, um, but that's that's really where, you know, I see it. Well, it's, it, it's a long-winded it's, issue. <laughs> it, it, it is, it is. And, 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 you know, with it being St. Louis, um, I, I, I don't know. Until we have a, a, a shift in leadership and a shift in mindset, I mean, this this is going to be the original sin for our city, yeah. is, is the issue of segregation. And you've mentioned that to me before. That's something that you said that stuck with me for years that I never really thought about. You once told me that until we as a region honestly confront our very racist past, we will never have the future that we want. We have got to acknowledge what happened. And it makes me wonder. Now, I haven't been a history teacher in this city. I, t- I practiced mostly in Atlanta, which had a whole other set you know, yeah. of issues. Oh, we had, we had plenty of things to talk about. Um, yeah. But it was, but I, I did grow up here and I grew up in North County. And yeah. after Ferguson happened, I started, you know, getting involved in groups and learning a lot more about things. And there was a piece that I read that dealt with real estate segregation. And I knew, first of all, nothing about it. But the, as I read through this, I'm starting to recognize some names in the story and some locations. And about halfway through me reading this piece, I said, holy shit, this is my neighborhood. (laughs) This is where I grew up. And I never knew anything about it. Nothing. It was not until I was in my, what, how old was I? Late 30s, 40? Before I even knew about this growing up, it was never discussed in any of my classes or or anything. Racism is something that happened in the South and it happened, you know, during this time. And it was a very contained, this is before and now we are, you know, moving forward. And I was taught by teachers of all races, and it simply was not a topic of discussion. I'd, I'm hoping sincerely that that has changed with at least some teachers that, you know, they are talking about a little bit more, but yes, they, are. they are. Okay, good. I'm so glad to hear that because my kids are going through these systems now. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of it depends on the teacher too and what their background is and their comfort mm-hmm. level with race. I mean, mm-hmm. not every teacher is equipped to talk about race. Right. Um, I mean, that's that's one of the things I definitely realized after Ferguson is, and even during Ferguson, is that some of the teachers just really were not comfortable talking about race and probably were not the best equipped to talk about race. Mm-hmm. And so um, the students can really sniff through a lot of your, your uh, biases and BS. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, they, they, they know who, who's, who's legit. Um, and, and who isn't? So, so there are there are folks who are able to to have those conversations. But my my fear is is that we don't have enough of those people. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, there are still teachers who are confronting their own biases yeah. and and mm-hmm. um, are um, not necessarily able to understand their biases in the present. But they're they're at least making you know, steps to, to work through it. I mean, um, 
I, I, I cannot recommend enough uh, Dr. Chris Emden, you know, for white folks teaching the hood and the rest of y'all, too. Oh, yeah, that's a great book. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, I mean, that's, that, 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 is, that is one of the, one of the books that is, is a go-to that I, I regularly share. I actually keep extra copies <laughs> in the office to hand out to some teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's just a lot to unpack. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm happy to see some of the more suburban districts have equity as their focus. Um, I just, I, I feel like there is a lot of talk um, but not a lot of uh, collaborative action per se. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we're necessarily reaching uh, everybody we need to reach, and mm-hmm. that that goes for folks in the city as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of education that needs to happen there as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure, definitely. And for you know, the, for those of you who are, are listening to this, if you are one of those teachers where you're still going through this yourself, you're still trying to figure out what your biases are or you were not uh, for me personally I, there are, this was always an important topic for me growing up in north county having friends that I, I saw the issues you know there were quite a few issues that you just can't ignore um, that when you grow up in a diverse environment but for a lot of people I, if you grew up in a very white middle class outer area how, how would you know how were you supposed to know you know any of that stuff so number one no matter where you are on this, give yourself a break. <laughs> you know that you're you're trying, that you're working through it. The only thing that's wrong to me personally is if you're not even trying. If you really just say, no, this isn't an issue. Well, there's not much I can do for you. <laughs> that's kind of like saying that gravity doesn't exist, you know. But um, but for a lot of people, what I tell my students, especially when we talk about any difficult issue, you know, that they're dealing with, if they don't feel qualified to address it or to mm-hmm. teach it. You know, I say, it's okay to tell your kids that, (laughs) you know, they're all different ages. They all understand things in a different way. You may have to communicate it differently. Uh, But personally, when I taught high school, I would tell them, look, I, this is not my area. Um, I'm really interested in it. I am trying to understand it, but I don't know everything. You know, I stand in front of this classroom and I teach you a lot, but I'm still a person. I'm still, you know, a younger person maybe. And um, I haven't experienced everything yet and I'm trying to understand it. And that kind of authenticity and a willingness to be vulnerable in front of your kids, it takes a very, very strong kind of teacher who absolutely deserves a raise, <laughs> number one. But uh, yeah, absolutely. it's okay yeah. to do that. Yeah, being vulnerable is the best thing you can be in a sense, you know, to where you're not, you know, totally weak in, in the sense that, you know, you just don't know anything. I mean, there's there's a difference between general ignorance and just vulnerability of, hey, I really don't understand this issue. I'm trying to work through it as well. But what I would say is, is try to find and network with the teachers who do know. And I, I mean, every single building has has that one go-to or, or a couple people. And, and, and don't go to just regurgitate what they say, but really use that as an opportunity to have a conversation and process. Um, and, and, and I think that's one of the areas that teachers are really um, needing. I would, I would recommend this to the younger teachers is really focus on like your processing time for yourself to where you have time to reflect on how you're looking at issues, how you're feeling about it. Uh, do your research, 
before you start having those conversations in the classroom. I mean, that I, I have been witness to conversations in, in classrooms go absolutely awry because the teacher really didn't have a good grasp of, of the underlying issues, um, didn't know their kids, didn't have the relationship with their kids, and, and that, that sort of stuff can cause problems all year long. And so it's, it's really important to have a mentor when it comes to your own understanding of issues of equity, race, um, even, even gender and sexuality issues. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, find, find some folks who, who know it better um, you know, get onto Twitter, follow the hashtags, follow conversation. I mean, for me, in in a lot of meetings and in a in a lot of conferences, uh, I'm I'm a person who will hang back and really spend a lot of time listening, taking notes, uh, spending time reflecting. But if there's something that's really eating at me, then I'll go and talk to people to to really flesh out those ideas. Um, it's it's that processing time. Uh, that's really important, and, and vulnerability is is so so important. Um, it it actually humanizes you to your students. They 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 actually say, oh, he's real. And, you know, I mean, I I I I understand him because I I'm right there with him. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, we we need to have more conversations, but making sure that we're getting. Uh, the right people into those conversations is really important, um, and I don't always like an echo chamber either. I wanna, I wanna have some dissent in there. I wanna hear the other perspective, but then, if I feel like they are wrong, then I wanna help them understand why they're wrong, to help change that perspective. So. Yeah, that's a really good point. I saw that a lot when I was teaching within my own divisions and departments. There were way too many people teaching multiple areas, and so history, economics, government, who were not comfortable enough with conflict. And mm-hmm. you ha- you have to be tolerant of that. You have to be completely open to people's views. And I had one class where I had one student who was a, an extreme religious, conservative, women don't even belong in the workplace, kind of, you know, like it's totally on one end. And then another student who was communist bordering on anarchy, which is a weird combination, but she was there, you know? So, and it just, oh, these two, I swear, I felt so bad for everybody else in the room because they would go on and on. But you got to be okay with that because the students learn from them as much as they do from you. And you got to get comfortable with that kind of conflict. Absolutely. And that's that's one of the things that I feel like, you know, again, coming back to what I was saying by asking more questions than giving answers, I, I, I approach those conflicts with more questions than I have answers, because sometimes you find out the reason why they feel that way is those are the talking points that they're parroting from someone else, whether it be a parent, a friend, mm-hmm. something they see on TV, but they really haven't given any thought to the issue. And that I say that to folks on the left and the right. You know, I, I really be sure of how you you have come to a conclusion through discussion and research. And again, that's that's where I feel like you know, as social studies, that's that's how we're going to get stuff done. Um, you know, stuff doesn't happen overnight. It does take time, but um, it it takes building up that 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 knowledge and that that sense of 
of knowing your why when it comes to things of great importance. Yeah, most definitely. And so there are a lot of teachers who listen who are not, you know, in any specific area, especially social studies. And some of the things that you touched on, though, these are skills that obviously translate everywhere. And so for teachers who might be in different subject areas, citizenship, I know, as you mentioned, is is a huge part of this. And it can be a part of every subject. It's always, to me, very unfair that teachers in different subject areas are expected to carry the load for this. Only math teachers are responsible for teaching math. Only English teachers are responsible for teaching writing. (laughs) So for social studies in particular, if like citizenship or engagement or understanding is, is the focus. So let me give you like three examples and you just give me ideas about how you think people could engage or integrate these things into their lesson. Okay, what if I am a librarian in an early childhood center? I would say uh, being able to produce books and stories that deal with um, rules or citizenship, how to uh, uh, build relationships with one another since that is like one of the core uh, social studies practices in early childhood is knowing how to start uh, peacefully resolving disputes. I mean, that's that's what we, we, we are telling kids, you know, use your words and not your fists. And, and, and that that is an opportunity there to do that. Um, I would even say if you're a librarian in early childhood center, this is where you start introducing books that uh, reflect uh, the different groups in society. So whether that's uh, books that have characters of color, um, by all means start introducing uh, students to the many different people and many different ideas that are in and a part of our society. Yeah, that's a great point. That, that's easy enough to do. So. But how about if you're an Algebra 1 teacher? Uh, math. Uh. <laughs> math teachers, it's just because no, we I, suck I, at it, okay? <laughs> I, I, I had this conversation with uh, our, our math specialists as well. Um, you know, I, I, wish, I wish math were taught to me in a way that made sense and not just purely theory. So, for example... My, my grandfather, one of my grandfathers was, was a, a principal who got to start as a shop teacher. And so I'm just imagining as a shop teacher, it's more than just working with equipment, but you have to know math in order to build something. And so if we're talking about, you know, producing structures uh, as an example, if, I, if I'm a kid who, who I know college is not for me, but helping them become a, a a beneficial member of society. I, I can't tell you how many kids uh, uh, I taught who went into the trades. Um, they learned best by by you know applying it to real life, and I and I see social studies being a part of that. You know where we have um, you know kids who who uh, are good with measurements and building, but then on the algebraic side, you know that's when we could start getting into like economics and mm-hmm. and. In issues of interest and you know all, all sorts of things there there is nothing in the world that social studies isn't connected to yeah so i mean those are just two issues no and that's a great example i think financial literacy is always just a huge that's another big thing that we <laughs> struggle with as a society <laughs> yes we do yes we do i don't though i never overspend so i'm good <laughs> 
ever, especially on shoes. Okay, how about an orchestra teacher? Ah, uh, music. Um, you know, again, music is a lot of history. I mean, if, if you don't understand the the history or the background of, uh, of a particular piece, why it was written or when it was written, um, that's definitely a part of it. But again, kind of uh, understanding that with an orchestra, you need to work together. Um, that That is the nature of what makes an orchestra sound, sound great. You know, you just cannot act uh, on your own. I, I don't... Is there a symphony of just one instrument? I mean, I, I don't know that there is. Uh, you, you, know, no. you, need, you need all different instruments. You need all different peoples in order to function. And that when somebody plays a note out of place, then the whole thing just sounds a hot mess. And I, and I feel like our society is the same way. You know, when we're looking at um, some of the different political philosophies, how might that reflect in a in a symphony? Um, who are the different roles? I mean, some people would argue that the uh, the conductor is almost like a dictator in a sense, and maybe for good reason. I don't know. Um, I I I went to a school for the arts. I can't sing. I can't dance. I can't play an instrument. What does that tell you? You know, <laughs> that's that's why I went into social studies. <laughs> No, that's, that's really great. I think I, you know, I didn't even think that's really awfully deep there, Glenn. I did not actually think about it that way, but yeah, you're right. When you get together in a team, anytime you watch a symphony, especially you watch the conductor, it's a fascinating connection to how we all have to kind of work together. I think that's a great answer. Yeah. I mean, I've always looked at the conductor as almost like, you know, the president in a sense where they're, they're conducting the bureaucracy. You know, if, <laughs> if you're not doing this part, then this fails. I mean, it's, it, government is a symphony and, and we could see some really crappy symphonies mm -hmm. going on around us because we don't have that structured leader. We don't have, uh, the disciplined practitioners around us. Uh, I, I think that's, I think it's a fair analogy, maybe not the best analogy, but that's, that's how I see a connection. Yeah. And we're going into this political season. We'll definitely see more of that. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to wrap up with just a few casual questions here. So I always want to wrap up with at least three things that help us get to know you a little bit more as a person and how you, you know, kind of connect to the region. So my first question is, I want you to finish the sentence for me. We'll grow as a region when we. We'll go grow as a region when we um, stop being independent little townships, fiefdoms and come together as a, a region for a common interest. Um, uh, I'm not approaching that from the, uh, you know, uh, better together perspective, which was the, the failed city county reunification. But, um, I, I really feel like we, we would be better together, um, as one region where we can, uh, attack some big problems with, uh, a lot more focus once we're all uh, invested into it. Yeah. yeah. Boy, that one's going to take a while to sort out, too. And I hear it takes $25 million, yeah. which I don't have. So. I don't either. I don't either. <laughs> okay. I recharge by? I recharge by traveling. Um, taking vacations is like one of my favorite things to do. I, I 
I just came back from two weeks in Oregon um, to where we were in the, the high desert, the mountains, the, the ocean. Um, I just love to travel. Um, I've been blessed to explore a lot of different places and see some different things. But for me, uh, being out on the road, seeing, seeing the world is, is how I recharge my batteries. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I can relate to that for sure. Okay. Outside of St. Louis, I feel most at home at, (laughs) uh, kind of along the same lines. Um, I feel most at home outside of St. Louis. One of my favorite places in the whole wide world is Santa Cruz, California, um, and the Monterey Bay Peninsula. Um, just so many beautiful places along there. Big Sur, uh, the boardwalk. Um, it's just peaceful. It's quiet. Um, my wife is originally from the area, so being able to see a really awesome environment uh, that's where I feel home most outside of St. Louis. Well, I am so glad to hear you say that because I will be there in November for the very first time. And that's going to be right about the time that I'm going to be freaking out and I'm going to need a break. So it sounds like it's a good yeah. spot. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll tell you where to go. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And, and, uh, just so many good, good things there. Wonderful. Fantastic. Okay. Well, Dr. Glenn Burns, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a fantastic conversation and we should definitely do it again sometime. Definitely. Thank you, Amy. Okay, everyone. I hope you heard something new and useful today. If you want to learn more or have an idea for a future episode of Rotten Apple, just go to educatestl.org where you'll find resources and links from today's chat and fun news and event information for educators all over the STL. Thanks for listening and connecting with all of us Rotten Apples and for doing what you can to get better every single day. See you soon.